0: The CNBC app. Global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected. Stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome to this edition of Squawk Box with Karen Cho in the city of London and me, Steve Sedgwick, in the city of Westminster. And these are your headlines taking the harder path after the House Speaker John Bercow denies Boris Johnson a straight vote on his Brexit deal. The UK government must now go on a more tortuous, elongated, dangerous path to get through their Brexit legislation.
1: UBS beats on the bottom line in what the Swiss bank calls a challenging environment but the lender still faces headwinds in investment banking and wealth management we'll be hearing from ubs ceo sergio Motti at 745 CET. the s p 500 closes less than one percent from its all-time high on earnings and trade optimism while russia's finance minister tells cbc his country isn't looking to benefit from strange u.s china relations
0: i can unambiguously say that Russia does not shape its policies on the basis of the problems of our neighbors, the biggest countries with the biggest economies in the world. We are conducting our policies on the basis of the interests of bilateral relations.
1: Sources tell CNBC's SoftBankers and Talks to take over WeWork in a deal that values the Workspace Company at between just $7.5 and $8 billion. Good morning. We start out the show looking at some numbers from UBS. Uh, The Swiss bank uh, reporting its numbers uh, a short time ago. And here's the latest. Uh, Switzerland's biggest bank uh, has posted 1.049 billion net profit for the third quarter of uh, this year. It has slimmed down its investment bank and cut costs uh, as it tries to tackle fairly difficult market conditions. The 16% drop that we have now witnessed in the third quarter, though, is ahead of a medium estimate uh, for the bank's uh, own consensus poll that was seen for a 22.5% drop. So the numbers uh, coming through slightly ahead. If you take a look at where analysts were sitting on the net profit line, $971 million was what they had pencilled in, but the net profit coming through very close to $1.05 billion. So you can see it's a beat on that metric. Just a tad shy on the operating income, though, 7 Nine billion, what has crossed uh, just over that 7.1 billion uh, anticipated by the market the commentary very important don't forget this is a bank that started out the year warning about some of the market conditions by the second quarter had some Fairly decent numbers to post It uh, had managed to, to lift its numbers now as the third quarter progresses. Investors are still lying this for what it means for sustainability at the bank for, for next year. The line in the announcement today, it says geopolitical tensions and trade disputes continue to impact investor confidence. It uh, remains committed to delivering on capital return objectives. And uh, the group continues to take actions to grow profitability and to capitalise on strength. So... Uh, it has repurchased $306 million of its shares in the third quarter. There's uh, a little bit of an update on the capital management. On third quarter, net new money and wealth management, that's at $15.7 billion. And uh, the uh, CET1 capital ratio, at 13.1% at the end of Q1. Uh, Q3, I should say, uh, so that is slightly above where peers are sitting. But I think our investors are still going to be listening to a lot of messages around the changes taking place at the company, including any light that they can shed on job cuts, and that's been uh, something reported in some of the press, including uh, a newspaper in Asia today, about uh, whether there's been a couple of jobs that have been removed from the business. Anyway, we'll be hearing from the UBS CEO, Sergio Morti at 7.45 CET. More numbers crossing this morning, this time from Novartis. uh, The Swiss pharma has been trying to move towards being innovative and creative on medicines. And that's certainly the pathway it started out to 2018 on as it had embarked upon a major gene therapy acquisition, but also sold off its joint venture with GSK. Uh, The numbers today. It uh, has uh, net sales revised upwards, expected to grow high single digit. This is quite telling because it was a company that had set down uh, its expectations at the start of the year. We had an upgrade by Q2, and now it has uh, given us another upgrade this time around net sales. And uh, what we have now seen cross in Q3, uh, the numbers uh, up to 5 billion US dollars in share buyback has been completed on the back of that net sales uh, level that has been revised up. Net income from continue operations was at 2 billion US dollars that is up 12 percent. The Nestro, this is uh, one of its core drugs that's uh, come through on the numbers at 430 million US dollars. The other big one to look at is uh, Cosentrix which is uh, sales of that business at 937 million. So, Just uh, a couple of lines crossing from this business. Uh, analysts uh, should just go into some of the guidance. Saw so its third quarter sales crossing uh, at about 11.7 billion the sales number today topping that at 12.17 so you can see how that is a beat on that line and just on the net profit line 2.04 billion crossing A uh, number analysts did expect that bottom line number to be a tad higher but perhaps the uh increased net sales number might be enough to compensate for that bottom line miss that we're seeing in the numbers today British lawmakers today will vote on the legislation required to move forward in the Brexit process after Prime Minister Boris Johnson failed to secure a meaningful vote on his Brexit deal. Well, Steve has more from Westminster. Steve, uh, Boris Johnson hoping for a simple yes or no vote that didn't happen yesterday. Talk us through where we stand today and what the chances still are of a hard Brexit.
0: Yeah, look, um, uh, repetitive and disorderly is what John Burko said yesterday. It would be if he allowed this meaningful vote to take place on Monday when actually the government just walked away. They didn't even pull it on Saturday. They walked away from it, as we were describing yesterday. So it was always going to be a a long shot whether John Burko was going to let this happen again, of course. And the recent history is from Theresa May's efforts to keep repeatedly getting her meaningful vote through uh, that obviously John Burko was going to go that way. So as we've been saying... It's a much more tortuous, dangerous route uh, for uh, the prime minister, for the government this week to get their legislation through. And it could fail uh, at any stage because there are multiple pitfalls uh, and multiple amendments which the opposition will try and bring through as well. But today uh, is absolutely crucial. I know we keep saying that, but every single day this week is absolutely crucial. You've got two things happening today. One, following yesterday's publishing of the 110-page uh, withdrawal agreement plus 125-page of explanatory notes as well. But no economic analysis, I hasten to add as well, from Sajid Javid, the Chancellor of the Exchequer. Uh, MPs will have the opportunity to debate at the second stage, the second reading uh, of this bill today, uh, ahead of votes, which will come this evening for two things. And they're both very important for the government to win if they want to get Brexit still by October 31st, which is looking a longer and longer shot uh, by the minute as well. One, they have to win the initial vote on the second reading. Second, they need to win the program motion which is this extraordinary situation where Jacob Rees-Mogg is asking MPs to pretty much do something they've never done before and which is have a huge amount of scrutiny of what is again 135 pages, oh, beg your pardon, 235 pages in total uh, of um, this Brexit legislation to try and read through that and then have scrutiny of it over the next couple of days and then have their final vote by Thursday so it can go to the House of Lords on Friday and for them to have uh, Friday and weekend sittings in order that it potentially could get royal assent by early next week. It is an absolutely extraordinary timetable, and it is fraught with danger. We'll talk about a few more of those dangers after we've heard from the leader uh, of the opposition, Jeremy Corbyn. But This type of nonsense is doing nobody any good at all. If the Prime Minister wants to get his deal through, he should bring forward the withdrawal agreement bill for scrutiny. Will he also... And... Will he also bring forward an economic impact assessment,
2: uh, yes, that would be
0: good. which has st- since that. Has so far not seen the light of day? And will he allow this House ample time to scrutinise what this deal means to the communities that we all represent? ample time for scrutiny as well. I mean, obviously, the government will say, look, you've had plenty of time to uh, debate Brexit and look at various aspects of this deal, which in some ways mirrors Theresa May's. But in some ways, of course, with that line down the Irish Sea, amongst other things and not having uh, any closeness for the whole of UK in terms of uh, alignment with regulations, environmental protections and worker rights with the EU. It is different in many, many ways as well. And that is what the opposition is saying. So what does the opposition do to thwart this as well, uh, to derail this timetable? they will look, Look at their various amendments, and which ones are most likely uh, to get some of those uh, people who are wavering in the middle who would vote for the second reading but actually don't like some of the aspects of the overall bill? What would they do to get them on side? Well, there are three areas that people are talking about one, of course, to attach a customs union amendment to the, to the bill as well, two, to put a second referendum, a confirmatory referendum amendment on to this bill as well, and third, to look and this is very important to look at an extension of the trade uh, if indeed there isn't by the end of the transition period at the end of 2020, December 2020, if there isn't agreement then so that there isn't a de facto hard Brexit, as some of the ERG have been uh, alluding to as well, that that could well be the case, uh, they will try and make it so that Parliament gains control of that extension of the transition period, not extension uh, of the Article 50 process. There are two different things there as well in order that there isn't a hard Brexit and falling back on WTO rules by the end of 2020. So those are three areas areas uh, that may well come up, uh, certainly at the committee stage uh, tomorrow, whether it comes up today, remains to be seen as well. Now, the fallback position for the government is, of course, that if they do get this bill derailed by any of those amendments being successful or other amendments elongating the process, then what Boris Johnson may well do is pull the whole bill uh, we're seeing reports of and potentially say, look, this isn't working. Uh, We have to go for the extension, of course, of Article 50, and that's in the domain uh, of the EU and Sylvia discuss that in a few moments time but then try and force an elish, an issue force a general election get his numbers get his numbers in the general election and get uh, a greater majority so that then he can reverse those amendments and go forward with the initial plan. It is torturous, but it is a game of cat and mouse being played out here in Westminster. And Of course, uh, everyone in Brussels are looking at this as well.
1: Incredibly tactical, isn't it? Uh, Steve, thank you very much. Stay right there. Let's get the take from Brussels. As European lawmakers expressed frustration over the delay of a meaningful vote at Westminster, while the EU's chief Brexit negotiator, Michel Barnier, reiterated the next steps depend on the UK Parliament as you can see Sylvia is in Brussels for us Sylvia there used to be a saying on movie sets hurry up and wait and that seems to be the game that they're now playing in Brussels
2: yes the Brussels side is just still waiting for more developments in the House of Commons this side is very keen on understanding how UK lawmakers feel about the revised exit agreement but in the meantime though we've heard from European lawmakers let's not forget they also need to rectify this exit agreement and yesterday in the european parliament it was decided that they will not vote on the exit agreement this week now one european parliamentary official explained to me yesterday that Potentially, European lawmakers could call for an emergency plenary next week to approve this uh, revised exit agreement. However, the same official also told me that the chances of that happening seem quite small. But let's take a listen to Girvidov He is the Brexit coordinator for the European Parliament, sounding very frustrated with the Brexit process yesterday. Let's take a listen.
3: It's not possible. There is, the, uh, there are votes in the in the in the Commons. The Commons is not ready this week. What oh, so are you, what you are talking the, are you about? What you are, are what you are, what you are talking about? The Commons is not ready. So don't blame the Parliament. Make me blame
0: in Westminster. You sound pretty frustrated, Mr. Verhofstadt. We are three years waiting. Huh?
2: So what else do we know from the European side? Well, we know that if the UK, if it needs that extension that it requested, then the question for the European Union is going to be for what reason? Does the extension need to happen for technical purposes? Well, if yes, the 27 European leaders could approve that extension by written procedure On the other hand, if the the extension needs to happen because of political reasons, say because of a general election, then the 27 European leaders will gather here in Brussels for an emergency summit potentially next week. Now, I have to tell you, Karen, that appetite for Brexit summits, for emergency meetings is very small at this stage. Nonetheless, the 27
1: European capitals do not want to be blamed for a no-deal Brexit. Emergency meetings, Sylvia, I think is going to happen really on the UK side at this point. I want to get back to Steve on, on that note. We've seen the frustration now in Brussels, but when it comes to the UK... What do you think the broader game is? Uh, There's some suggestion it is about still frustrating Brexit, frustrating Boris Johnson's plan, or is it about just slowing down the process, given the amount of material to read, 110 pages? Because I can imagine if Brexit gets done, uh, down the track and if it happened to be a bad deal, that as journalists we would be asking the questions, why didn't you study the text of this document?
0: Well, look, let's be honest about it, and let's remind ourselves, and actually I've got a point about Brussels being frustrated as well, which I want to raise with Sylvia, if I may, in a few moments time, but in terms of um, the the scrutiny uh, of the documents as well, you've got to remember this is only the start Anyone who thinks Brexit can be potentially over if there was this amazing glide path from the UK government through to Royal Ascent uh, next Tuesday, they've got another thing coming. This thing could go on for ages. And this was pointed out by one of the members uh, of the ERG who kind of put his foot in it a little bit by saying, look, actually, at the end of the transition period, we could still fall back on WTO rules. And the transition period, of course, uh, ends in December 2020. And to get a big, all-encompassing free trade deal done in 14 months, well, that's that's tight as well so anyone who on their right minds think this is the beginning and end of it this week uh, is living in cloud cuckoo land because of course this is just the bit about the divorce bill this is all the bit just the bit about getting the legislation in place to leave this is the bit uh, about workers rights about citizens rights on both sides in the EU and UK so actually the whole bit about how we deal with Europe going forward that's still to be decided as well so you're absolutely right it is about scrutiny here and now of that 110 pages plus 125 pages of explanatory notes, but it is only the start of the process if we were, not telling viewers otherwise, then that is just not the case as well. The other point I wanted to raise, and this is uh, one Sylvia uh, raised there about the frustration growing in Europe as well. Well, yes, I understand why they're frustrated with the process. But ultimately, the likes of Donald Tusk, the likes of many, uh, including Guy Verhofstadt, want the UK to remain in Europe. No matter how cantankerous we are, no matter how annoying we are, we're a big, wealthy net contributor to the EU as well. Uh, And the stability, believe it or not, that the UK can bring rather than actually uh, have or the instability from leaving is actually quite important for Europe going forward so whilst they are now at the moment apparently resigned to the fact that there won't be a second referendum that this process will go ahead at some stage as well ultimately it is in their interest to uh, guarantee or to agree an extension despite what President Macron says about he doesn't want one it's not desirable as well about what Juncker said about we don't want a prolongation as well because of course it's not in his behest to either give one or not as well so let me ask Sylvia on this point as well yes Sylvia I understand the frustration about the process in Europe at the moment about what's going on but actually if they can hold out even a slither of hope that the UK remains surely that is the ultimate goal
2: Well, one could argue as well, Steve, that uh, when you look at uh, the potential extension that could happen at this stage, it seems that the EU would be more willing to have a short-term extension rather than a long one. And if you remember back in April when we were discussing whether the second extension, which is where we are at the moment, should last one year or uh, should be just about three months, back then we saw the EU very divided indeed. President Donald Tusk of the European Council was pushing for a one-year extension, hoping potentially that the, the UK would change its mind and revoke Article 50. Back then as well, Macron, on the other side of the argument, was pushing for the shorter extension because... He did not want Brexit to interfere with European politics, but now, Steve, things are looking a little bit different. When you look at uh, where this extension could potentially go, you don't hear Donald Tusk saying that the extension should last for one year. So it does seem from the remarks from people that were hoping that the UK would change its mind, that, that the chances of that happening are looking very small. and perhaps quite uh, in a slow pace, but the EU is slowly realizing that that's the situation. But let me just make a final remark about the uncertainty, the Brexit uncertainty, because this is set to last for the coming months, for the coming years. As you mentioned, Steve, we're just talking about the divorce deal at this stage, but what about the trade negotiations? How will that go on? For how long will the UK and the EU be discussing trade? Let's not forget that uh, the trade agreement that the EU negotiated with, the, with Canada not too long ago, lasted. the negotiations lasted five years and the, the, the trade agreement has not been ratified by all European Parliament. So let's see how that second phase will evolve if, of course, the House of Commons approves this
1: deal in the meantime. Maybe we can rely on a special relationship for that trade agreement, guys. (laughs) Thank you very much, Sylvia and Steve, for joining us with all the Brexit latest from Westminster and Brussels. In the meantime, a quick look at how sterling is shaping up this morning. It's a strong trade towards the higher end of the ranges. We are just shy of the 1.30 handle this morning, 1.29.85, despite some of those developments just spelt out. Coming up on the show, Lebanon unveils a raft of new measures as it looks to quell protests over the country's economic conditions. We'll have more from Beirut right after the break.
0: A CNBC signature event.
1: Lebanon's government has agreed on a package of reforms as it looks to calm growing protests over the country's economic situation. The moves include a cut to the salaries of both past and current ministers, a attacks on bank profits and promises to fight corruption. Lebanese Prime Minister Sad Hariri said that the protesters served as, quote, a compass for the measures, adding that he does not want to silence demonstrations.
0: These decisions are not for exchange, so they are not for me to ask to stop protesting and to stop expressing the anger. This is a decision that you take and no one gives you a deadline. You should be sure that I will not accept that anyone threatens you or tries to terrify you.
1: Hadley joins us with more from Beirut. Hadley, I was curious that the protests were initially sparked by tech tax of sorts to go after WhatsApp messages. And now the, the package of reform is much more traditional, going after salaries of those that many are protesting about, the inefficiencies caused by government, and also targeting a usual suspect, the so-called banks.
3: Absolutely, Karen. It seems as if the prime minister is really following on to that interview that we had with him just six weeks ago in terms of going after corruption. Um, Still a bit nebulous in terms of exactly how they're going to do that. Many of the signs that we saw over the last several days alluded uh, to the fact that this is a country uh, that's calling for essentially their own Riyadh Ritz-Carlton in terms of getting that money back. People again and again in the streets saying that they, they want to get... They want to claw all the stolen and mismanaged funds over the years back from the folks in power, the politicians, current and former ministers, MPs, uh, president or presidents. I mean, this is something that they are definitely targeting within these plans. But one wonders whether they're going to really be able to do much given all of the years of political and fiscal mismanagement. Listen in in a sign of just how worried Lebanon's political elite have become. As hundreds of thousands took to the street for days in nationwide rallies, the prime minister finally managed to push through a long-awaited package of economic reforms, as well as a 2020 budget with his cabinet's full approval. The 18-point plan aims to reform the power sector, privatize telecoms, and cut salaries of current and former presidents, ministers, and MPs by half, It also calls on private banks to pay up with a new tax on bank profits and orders the central bank to lower interest rate payments, a move that should contribute some 3.3 billion and help to achieve a near zero deficit for the 2020 budget. And while a proposal by the country's president to release current and former politicians' financial records could force transparency and accountability, it may not be enough to restore people's faith in their government. Now, in spite of the prime minister's efforts, folks say that his economic agenda just doesn't go far enough. They're calling for a complete overhaul of this government, and they say they're going to continue demonstrating until they get it. Lebanese government bonds fell on Monday in response to protests. It's a country that's been running consistent budget deficits since the end of its civil war, racking up one of the highest public debts on earth. And now regaining the credibility of global financial markets and the IMF will be crucial to avoiding a currency devaluation or debt default. Now, in spite of all of the work of Mr. Hariri and his cabinet coming together over the weekend and trying to find some way forward in terms of not just the economic agenda, that 18 point plan, but also uh, the 2020 budget, I got to tell you, it seemed as if the demonstrators showed no signs yesterday uh, that they would uh, go home, frankly this is interesting. So if you can see this behind me, there seems to be a convoy of Lebanese army uh, moving through central Beirut. We're right here across from Martyr Square. Of course, this is uh, where the demarcation line was between East and be- West Beirut uh, during the country's civil war. Uh, this is really the heart of the city. Now, I do want to mention that in spite of the fact that most of these protests have been pretty peaceful, even festive, as you can see in the shots, a lot of a lot of people out to party and nobody does it better, of course, uh, than the Lebanese. There were some incidents yesterday, uh, later in the evening, where a Members of Hezbollah and other parties seeming to try uh, to come into central Beirut and disturb those protests. The army uh, did come in and they took care of that uh, pretty, pretty quickly. But it does speak to the fact that, you know, at some point, um, this is a situation that could devolve quickly. And we're not just talking about uh, the protests themselves, but it's the appearance of the chaos, guys. It's the appearance of the government at this point unable to move the dial forward and bring people back home because uh, not just... A lot of people here speaking to me off record, on record, saying they're deeply concerned about the financial system. They're deeply concerned about what's going to happen when these banks reopen. We still haven't gotten word, by the way, when they plan to reopen the banks in this country, but also about the political system itself.
0: Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to CNBC.com.
1: Or join us again on this show with Jeff Cupmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.